We're in chapter uh, 10 in our study, ongoing study of the book of Romans. And uh, the boss told me in an email he sent out to you, I'm going to start in verse 1. So I will start in verse 1. Now, it's a, I don't, uh, well, I guess I do have a board here. Uh, maybe I'll do this. You're all pretty familiar with it, but I'll do it nonetheless. Right? Get it to this section. If you think of my railroad tracks and not analogy, it's going to break your time right to the convenience. <clears throat> the right hand side of the railroad track always represents divine sovereignty. And in our study so far of Romans, chapter 9 is giving focus to God's sovereignty. Paul, and I, I regard it as masterful. Paul is giving a masterful defense of the sovereign freedom of God to do what he wants to do. And you always remember, as I said two weeks ago, whenever you think of God and you think of his attributes, missions, omnipresence, omnipotence, eternal, just, grace, mercy, etc., always hold those attributes in perfection. He's never partially just. He's totally just. He's never partially gracious, he's totally gracious. And they never, they meaning the attributes, never contradict one another. And I mean, that too, I mean, this is hard. We're, we're, we're thinking theologically here, but it's important you do that. The other side of the railroad tracks is human, this is terrible, and responsible freedom. And this is the theme of chapter 10, which we're about to study. Because he has, he, Paul, has defended the sovereignty of God in his electing grace, in his dispensing of mercy, I will have mercy in whom I want, etc. But now he has to explain, well, but why did my people not respond? Are they robots? Are they automatons? Did they not understand it? Or whatever. And so he's going to deal with this very important premise that when Israel rejects Jesus as their Messiah, they are doing that rejection in a responsible, accountable way. They are culpable for their denial. And this is this, this is the tension we view. Sovereignty, freedom. And so you cannot bring those two together satisfactorily with the human being. So that's why I like the railroad tracks analogy, because they're parallel on into eternity, right? In the horizon, they look like they come together, but they always run in parallel, and the train doesn't work. Well, that's the way life is. When we get to eternity, possibly, I assume, we'll have a degree of understanding about some of this that we don't have now. So that's just an overview. If you've been around here, you've seen that before. <clears throat> Verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, that's been the subject, is that they may be saved. All right, now he said that at the beginning of chapter 9, so he's repeating that. That's my desire, that's my prayer. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That is, that is an incredibly important statement about the Jewish people in the first century, and in a very real sense even about the Jewish people in the 21st century. There is a zeal for God. I mean, why? Why does a Jewish family observe, if you've ever been around Jewish families, meticulously all the details of Sabbath, Shabbat? Why do they do that? It's a zeal for God. They want to please God. They understand what he's, 
declared in the Old Testament. They live in the Old Testament economy. They don't understand, accept, or they reject the New Testament, all about Jesus. So there's a zeal there. Why are they, especially when you're, if you ever go to Israel and you're in Jerusalem and you see all of the Hasidic Jews, if you're ever in Brooklyn, in, in New York City, you see so many Hasidic Jews. I mean, why do they dress the way they dress? Why do they act the way they act? Why, do, why are they so incredibly structured and legal? Because they have a zeal for God. They believe this is what God wants them to do. But he says, but not according to knowledge. The word knowledge is a word of content. If you have knowledge about something, you believe a content about something. You understand what I mean? If you have knowledge about a chair, well, you see a picture, that's a chair, right? Because of all your best knowledge of seeing chairs. It's a stupid illustration. But also, you also understand that a chair is something I can trust, something I can sit on, something that has a degree of comfort. What I'm saying to you is that kind of knowledge is immensely important for living. But Paul's saying a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So a zeal for God, for God, but they don't have the right knowledge about God. So let's put it another way. Their knowledge about God and everything he's doing is restricted to one block of his written revelation. We call that the Old Testament. They are rejecting the New Testament. So, I mean, that's, a, that, that's an astounding and profound and yet very simple summary of their problem. They have the zeal, but they don't have the complete content of the knowledge about God, what he's doing, what his plan is, all that's revealed in the books of the New Testament. So I, I know lots of Jewish people because of, of the things I've done in Israel and so on, but I see that everywhere. And it's, it's admirable. It's actually, in, in one sense, it's kind of uplifting to see the Jewish people and how dedicated they are to their faith, to their country, to their family, incredibly important family people. But it's sad. They're living in an old economy. They're living in the old covenant. And that's done with. And they're missing out on all the blessings of the new covenant. That's zeal without knowledge. So another example would be the zeal that Paul had when he was Saul and the zeal that Paul has Perfect. as a Christian. Perfect illustration. Perfect illustration. Paul had the zeal. That's why he's persecuting the church. He brought him as the enemy. But he didn't have the right none. So Jesus has to smash into his life as he did in Damascus Road. And then he takes 13 years to figure it all out. You know, there's a scripture, I would rather you be hot or cold. And how does that find application in this instance? Well, that's in reference to the church at Laodicea at the end of chapter 3 in the book of Revelation. And that, um, that, that element, I think, zeroes in on the, on, the, on the zeal. The church at Laodicea had the right knowledge. They didn't have the passion and zeal. He says, you're lukewarm, you're complacent, you're apathetic. And, and so he, he said, they just have the opposite there. They have the right knowledge, but they don't have the zeal. They, they, they let themselves slip into, uh, it's a great word, I love this word, 
into a state of lethargy. Isn't that a great word, lethargy? In, into a state of lethargy. And Jesus says, I don't want you to be like that. I want you to be the hot, because it's referring to, to the water that they pumped into Laodicea by aqueduct. But the, the, point, the point is, with Laodicea and the illustration you're using with your question is, it's just the opposite. They have the right knowledge, but they lack the zeal. And see, that's, that's why the Church of Laodicea is such a tragic church. Because if any church that had been excited and thrilled and on fire for the Lord, it should have been the Laodicean church, but they weren't. Jesus says, I'm going to discipline you. I'm very clear about that. I'm going to discipline you to get you out of your lethargy. An interesting question, which we are not going to talk about today. <laughs> An interesting question would be, where would you put the American Evangelical Church in the United States in 2020? Zeal or knowledge? Like I said, we are not going to talk about that. Now he goes on in verse 3. He wants to further explain this. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So there, the Apostle Paul in verse 3 is zeroing in on that content, the content of the knowledge, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. What does he mean by that? They rejected Jesus. They rejected and thereby were ignorant of the righteousness that's available through Christ. So because they rejected that, what do they do? They seek to establish their own, their own what? Their own righteousness. By the law. And so his conclusion is they did not submit to God's righteousness. And that they did not submit to God's righteousness means they did not submit to Jesus, who is the only way you can obtain the righteousness of God, which is justification by faith, the thesis of this book, of the book of Romans. And then he adds to tie it all together for Christ. And remember, Christ is Messiah. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that, that I read from the SV translation, and I, I'm not comfortable with that translation for Christ is the end of the law. Because the Greek word that they're translating is telos. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but T-E-L-O-S. But that's really an important Greek term. So when you use the word, as they are translating, the end of the law, you say, well, and I kind of think of that in terms of time, or in terms of a trip. You know, I'm at the end of my trip, or I'm at the end of this time block, or whatever. That's not the right way to think about it. The Greek word for telos has this sense of purpose. Goal, intent. So I would translate, for Christ is the purpose, the intent, the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, the righteousness that the law defines, the Ten Commandments, for example, etc., is attainable through Jesus. Because Jesus is the full, and it's a, a word that the Gospels use, especially Matthew, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He fulfills all the aspects of the law. So it's complete. 
It's completed in him. It reaches its goal. That's a great word. It reaches its telos in Jesus. And so therefore, that telos is the righteousness that everyone believes. (laughs) And again, that's just another uh, summary of the word justification. We're declared righteous by God when we put our faith in Christ. Jim, I have a question. Yeah, uh, please. On, on the, how is it that God is just and the foolish people here miss it? Do they not know? Are they outright right, rejecting Christ? They're not going into hell without knowledge that they have forsaken salvation. Is that correct? They well, they have. I'm not sure I understood the last part. There, they have willingly and knowingly rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and knowingly, willingly rejected all of the details of Jesus public life and public ministry, which includes his death, burial, and resurrection. They reject all that as being applicable or necessary or a required part. They don't, they don't deny that he was crucified. That's an historical fact. But they, they, there's no significance to that. And so uh, uh, perhaps a better way to think about it is this. Paul was going to talk more about this in the next section of this, this chapter. The Jewish people received all of the prophetic declarations of what to look for when Messiah shows up. And one thinks, he'll quote from Isaiah a lot here. Just think of the things in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, especially Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant who dies and all of that. Well, here they have all this information, they have all this detail, they have all this content. What did they say about that? We are still waiting for that person. Jesus is not that person. So they have the content. They know exactly what Messiah is supposed to look like and what he's supposed to do. So Jesus shows up, does all this, and what do they still say? He's not my Messiah. And as Fred mentioned a little bit ago, before Paul met Jesus in Damascus, that is exactly how he thought. I know what the Old Testament says about the Messiah. Jesus is not the Messiah. Therefore, I'm going to persecute this group of followers who are following this crazy guy. And so Jesus smashes into his life in Damascus Road and said, you are persecuting me when he's going after the church. And then Paul, I mean, he's just absolutely, absolutely broken. But you have to think of, and Fred is in another class, and he showed me say this, but in, 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 in Paul's life, when he comes to meet Christ in Damascus Road, it's 13 years until he's called out in the first missionary journey. We don't know all he did in those 13 years. No, a little bit, but mostly we don't know. I've always argued that it's those 13 years that Paul, is he becomes very engaged in ministry and so on, that he is processing all of the theological implications of the proposition, Jesus is my Messiah. I denied that. Now I know he is. What does that mean? And what we're studying right now, the book of Romans, is part of the theology that Paul works through in all categories, if Jesus is my Messiah. And see, we're going to read about this uh, coming up here as well in chapter 11. Paul's going to use a very curious phrase. God, in effect, has darkened 
the mental and spiritual eyes of the Jewish person. Why does he do that? So that the Gentiles can come in. So a question. Jim, I have a question. Be very, very thankful for Okay, Jim? Woody, I'm sorry. That's all right. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you can't see me raise my hand, so I don't know how to do it. But anyway. You did it the right way. God honors interruptions. Okay, all right. God honors interruptions. Uh, so therefore, the Jews had no knowledge of the Holy Spirit either, huh? Um, I, I want to qualify a little bit in your question. It wouldn't be completely accurate to say, and we're speaking now of Jewish people at the time of Paul, so we're in the first century. Yes. It, would, it, would, it would not be really accurate to say that the Jewish people did not have a knowledge about the Holy Spirit. That is taught in the Old Testament. One thinks of Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, for example. So they knew about the Holy Spirit. They knew the importance of the Holy Spirit as it relates to the, to the New Covenant. But that would be about the end of it, Woody. They would not understand, because they rejected the New Testament, they would not understand all of the elements of this Holy Spirit's work in the New Covenant, which would be, for example, John chapter 16, Ephesians chapter 5, and, many, and, and a major part of the book of Hebrews. So if I could just qualify it a little bit that way, so that you, you are right in that sense. They, they knew of the Holy Spirit. They knew the importance of the Holy Spirit as related to the New Covenant. But that probably would have been about the end of it. Would they, you and I would they, have a much greater understanding of the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Okay, they, they wouldn't understand the work of it. Kind of the, the, full, the full blessing, that's right, the full blessing and work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. You need the New Testament material, which I cited a few of those references. You need the New Testament material to really understand the fullness of the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. And that's really, that's part of, that's part of, the, part of the issue, too, with, um, with the Jewish people. So, yeah, that's a good question. I'm glad you brought that up. So, the other thing you made part of perspective is that the, they're on the end of a 400 year period of intense legalization mm -hmm. of the Jewish religion, and they're also very preoccupied with the Roman occupation. And so they're having a little trouble putting their head around this Jesus guy that just popped up. <laughs> That's really true. All right, let's move on then. Now, going to verse 5. Um, Paul has to has to talk about something. This zeal of the Jewish people. Zeal kind of focuses on what you do. But he's going to say, if I can summarize in, in as brief a way as I can, verses 5 through 13, God is not interested in what you do. God is interested in what you believe. The Jewish people were busy at doing. They missed the requirement of faith in Jesus. Now, follow how he lays this out in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. 
And he is alluding to Leviticus 18.5. And that's true. <laughs> but let's stop there for a minute. If you are going to try to attain salvation by keeping the law, how much of the law must you keep? All of it. Can you miss one part of it? No. The law is an organic whole. You can't pick and choose. You must keep all of it perfectly. But righteousness based on faith, verse 6, says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? So let's stop there for just a quick moment. There is no need to travel to heaven and try to bring the Messiah down to you. There's no need to descend into the abyss, a place of judgment and punishment, to bring Christ up. Now, at one level, you're reading that verse and saying, what in the world does that mean? Well, think about that for a minute. Do not say in your heart, who goes up to heaven to bring Christ down, who goes down the abyss to bring Christ up. Because Christ has already come. He's come from heaven. He has accomplished what God wants, God the Father wants him to accomplish. It is done. And so the righteousness that's based on faith understands that all of that has already been accomplished. Whereas the Jewish people are standing back and saying, it hasn't been accomplished yet. I'm still waiting for it to be accomplished. But the righteousness based on faith understands this has already been done. It's accomplished. It's done. That's why Paul goes on. But what does it say? I'm in verse 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. It's already here. It's already completed. It's already done. It's in your mouth. It's the words that are being said. It's in your heart, the center of your will. And the word is what we've been proclaiming, the word of faith. The content of the belief that's necessary for salvation is centered on Jesus. He has come. You don't have to try to bring him down. He's already come. Jews are saying, we gotta, we're waiting for the Messiah. He hasn't shown up. Paul said, he's already come. He's accomplished his work. Because you see, verse 9, it's not about doing it's not about zeal alone. It's about responding to a specific content about Jesus in faith. This is a very famous verse. I'm sure you've heard this many times. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's content. Zeal without knowledge. The knowledge they refused to accept was that Jesus is Lord, and the Father raised him from the dead. And the reason the Father raised him from the dead is because he put his work. 
For with the heart, one believes and is justified. Again, that heart is not that little organ in the middle of our chest that pumps our blood through the body. That's the center of our will, the center of our spiritual life, the center of our will. With the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses in the same. It starts from the inside, and then you say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. In this case, believing is accepting. Believing is what? Is accepting. Yeah, accepting, right. Exactly. For the scripture says, everyone who believes, I'm in verse 11 now, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting from Isaiah 28, 16. Everyone who believes in him shall not be to the same. That's in the Old Testament. So as Paul talking about the Jewish people, he's saying the Old Testament says that. Verse 12. Where there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. That bestowing on Lord is Lord of all. There's riches is from Joel chapter 2. I know that's not a normal book you read from Joel chapter 2. But again, why is Paul doing it? He's showing that these teachings are in the Old Testament. And then this very famous verse, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. So he's worked us through these verses, through verse 13. They have zeal but not knowledge. They lack the knowledge of who Jesus is. They refuse to believe who Jesus is. And so verse 5 through 13, he zeroes in on the content of what do I have to believe? And that's what he's just revealed. Don't try to bring Jesus down. He's already come. And that's what the Jewish people aren't there yet. And then these wonderful allusions and quotations from the Old Testament. This is very famous. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead to be saved. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. The Jewish people focused on doing. Keeping meticulously the law of God. Paul says that's not enough because if you choose that path to righteousness, you must keep every single part of the law without failure. You cannot miss one, and it must be perfectly. But the silliness of that is Jesus has come and fulfilled the law. And you must understand, with your mouth, you proclaim it. With your heart, you believe it. And Jesus is Lord, and the Father raised him from the dead. And you call upon him, you will be saved. It's not about doing. It's about believing. This isn't hard, is it? So I guess I'll still nonetheless ask. You got it? <laughs> All right? Yep. It's, 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 it's a, 
I almost want to use the word indictment, but I'm not sure, not sure I want to use that word. It's such a harsh word. But in a sense, it is. It's a very forthright indictment of the Jewish position when it comes to Jesus. And until and unless a Jewish person, this is true of any human being, but his focus here just on the Jewish people. But if you refuse to come to terms with Jesus, <laughs> there's no other hope. You must have, come to terms with Jesus. We do have Jews with Jesus. Oh, yeah. I am assuming this is an accurate statement. But proportionately, you know what I mean, proportionately, more people are coming to Jesus now than at any point since, since, uh, since the first century. Again, proportionally. Remember, there are about 13.5 million Jewish people on planet Earth. About 8 million of them live in Israel. And the, the number of Jewish people that are responding to the gospel is quite astonishing. It really is. It's a very fertile time. Where does this happen? It's largely in other parts of the world, not in the United States, and including in Israel. And it's, I mean, I, I, have, uh, I have several very close friends who are Jewish individuals who came to faith in Christ. And uh, I, I mean, I went to seminary with two of them. I, those guys are absolutely on fire. I mean, they are just, because they become convinced that Jesus is my Messiah. And because Jesus is my Messiah, that makes everything different. Now, in the one case, a guy from New Jersey, he was totally cut off from his family. His family. They want nothing to do with him. His father treats him as if he's dead, which is often the case in, in that kind of a situation. But nothing will ever convince Larry that he's wrong. He believes with his heart and has confessed with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, is my Savior. So, I mean, it's uh, another guy uh, that I know in Chicago, and he, he was on the faculty of Moody uh, for a number of years. But he, he is a Jewish guy from New York, Brooklyn. He came to faith in Christ, totally cut off from his family. But he's an incredible guy. He's written several important books uh, dealing with these themes. And it's just when that, that turnaround occurs, then the amazing transformation. And it's like what... Happened to the Apostle Paul is what's happened to these friends of mine. These guys that I know. That's the way they are. They've just been totally transformed, absolutely captivated by the truth of the gospel. They don't only have zeal, they have the right knowledge. And when you combine right zeal with right knowledge, you're going to maul everyone over with the truth. That's not the right metaphor. You're going to maul them over. You're, you're going to win them over through the truth of the gospel. All right. And maybe you will maul them over, but that's usually, you don't maul people over to bring them to Christ. That's not the right method to have. All right, if there are no questions, um, there were some questions, so I maybe should say if there are no other questions. He has to move into this issue now. I understand, this is what we're responding to, Paul. I understand that they didn't get the content right. They had the zeal, but didn't have the content. They have the knowledge right. You've just reviewed for us what the correct knowledge is. It's all about Jesus and so on. So Paul has to answer this question. Well, was the problem was they never heard this? 
Or was the problem that they didn't understand it? That's what he has to answer. If they rejected this message, was it because they didn't hear it? Or was it because they heard it but didn't understand it? That's the strategy he's going to take. This How he deals with us. Look at verse 14. He begins with his, one of his typical styles, now he writes, with a rhetorical question. How then can they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is really, this is really kind of an important summary of how God gets the word out to human beings. This is how he did it in the Old Testament. This is how he does it in the New Testament. This is how he did it at the time of Moses. This is how he does it in 2022. I want you to notice the key word. Call, believe, hear, preach, sent. The gospel involves those key herbs. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? They can't. How are they to believe in whom they've never heard? How they hear without someone preaching? How do they preach unless they're sent? So we got to work our way back from sent to call. Someone has to go. Someone has to be sent. Now, who's sending? Okay, that's not a hard question. This is what's called class participation. Christ, who's Christ doing the sending? How, say it again. Christ, Christ sent. Jesus sent himself. Yeah, God Christ is doing commission. Yeah, Jesus is commissioning them. Uh, we are commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so God commissions, God sends. In Isaiah chapter 6, God commissioned and sent Isaiah to be a prophet to Israel. He didn't want to do it at first. If you go back to Exodus 3 and 4, God commissioned and sent Moses to be the deliverer of Israel. Uh, Moses didn't want to do it. He gave five reasons why God was making a mistake. But God said, I dismiss all of those, you're going. So God commissions, God sends. And what's the primary responsibility in the context of the gospel? To preach. Someone uh, preach, uh, the Greek word for preach means to proclaim. It's a proclamation. You're proclaiming something that's true. You're proclaiming something that's already happened. You're proclaiming something that's a verifiable, attestable, historical event that has eternal significance in your life and the life of every human being. Here is that truth. And they're sent by God to preach 
so that then people can hear the truth. Nobody's going to ever hear the truth if somebody isn't proclaiming the truth. And so the first step is for them to hear it. They have to hear the truth. I have no idea how they ever reached this conclusion. But an evangelical agency who does all kind of polling and all that stuff says, a person has to hear the gospel clearly proclaimed at least seven times before they So assuming, again, I have no idea how they reach that conclusion, but assuming that's true, that means a lot of people have to go and be proclaiming the truth. Because if a person has to hear it seven times, before they respond, that means a lot of people are going to have to be proclaiming it. Now, it can be the same person saying the same thing to that individual person seven times, but they got to hear it. So somebody's got to be going, because you have to hear it. And hearing means, and this is where, and he's not focusing on here, in this particular passage of Scripture, this is where the Holy Spirit's role comes in. Remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16? The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that's all the work of the Holy Spirit before a person comes to faith in Christ. But leaving that point aside, they have to hear it. But that's not enough. They have to not only hear it, they have to believe it. And so that's the response to the proclamation of the person who's sent by God. The person hears it, assuming that statistic is correct, they hear it at least seven times. And they believe it. They respond in faith. Then they have the privilege and right to call on God whom they believe. They now develop that privilege of communication with the living God. And again, you know, Paul's sequence of rhetorical questions, you start with the last one to work to the first one. And so this is really important. Paul has just laid down here is God's methodology. It was his methodology with Isaiah, with Jeremiah, with Nebuchadnezzar, which I believe did come to faith from the proclamation of Daniel. And I mean, on and on and on. Throughout the old time. And it's true in this. That's exactly what happened to Paul. That's exactly what happened to the disciples. And I mean, everyone that comes to this is exactly what happened. Someone was sent by God to proclaim the truth, you heard the truth, you believed the truth, now you have the privilege of calling on him, who you believe. You have a relationship with him. And Paul is saying that is the way God worked. That's the way God has always worked. That's the way that God's working now. In 2022, that's the way God is working. And Jim, if you had a friend, and you were talking with him, and he was open to receiving it, that means that you personally might be the one to absolutely, hear absolutely. Seven times. That's right. That's right. You may say that seven times to that person over your relationship. Absolutely. Again, assuming that I again I have no idea how they arrived at that, but I'm assuming it's true. And then he quotes at the end of verse 15. He quotes a very famous quotation from Isaiah 52:7. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Man, that's an Old Testament quote. That's not in Matthew. That's in Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed 
what he has heard from us. Isaiah 53, I believe it's verse 1. Hearing is not enough. Hearing is not enough. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, the gospel. Hearing the truth isn't enough. You have to respond to the truth in faith. So this is, again, as I said, this is masterful, because what Paul has just done here is he summarized, this is God's program. This is God's methodology. So in the Old Testament, he has all these quotes and allusions from Isaiah. It's the way God's always done it. But the key is not just hearing, but believing the word of Christ. So, now we're at the core of what he's going to do. Did the Jewish people not hear? That's verse 18. Did they not understand what they heard? That's verse 19. But I ask, have they not heard? It falls like saying, okay, here I am. This is about, you know, A.D. 55 or 56 when he's written or writing the book of Romans, okay? I look back all of the history of the Jewish people since 1446 B.C. When they were called out of Egypt, got the law, etc. Have they not heard? If you were going to try to prove this from the Old Testament, what would you quote? This is great. What we quote from Psalm 19, verse 4. Indeed, they have heard. But their voice has gone out to all the earth their words to the ends of the world. Everybody's heard about it. They've heard the truth. But maybe they didn't understand it. Verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand it? First, Moses says, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, 21, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah, verse 20, is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And that quote from Deuteronomy 32, 21, and that quote from Isaiah 65, verse 1 and 2. Of whom is Paul speaking here? The Gentile. This is really, this is the crux of his arguments. The Gentiles not only heard, they understood it. And they responded in faith. You guys heard it. You understood it, but you rejected it. 
And the consequence is, God says, because that is the reality, Israel will be jealous as the Gentiles experience the blessings of faith. And the Gentiles who did not seek God find God because someone teaches, someone hears, someone responds in faith. They did, you did not. So the issue is, you Jewish people, not that you didn't hear and not that you didn't understand. You heard and you understood. The Gentiles responded in faith. You did not. So the fact that the on human responsible freedom side, that the Jewish people heard it, understood it, but rejected it, is evidence of their, I'm going to use a big word, their culpability. They're not robots and automatons. They willingly and knowingly rejected the message about Jesus. And, and again, quoting from Isaiah 65 in verse 21, of Israel, says, all day long I've held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. And who are the disobedient and contrary people? The Jewish people. God says, all day long I've held out my hand. Come back to me. Here's what I've done. Here's what I've accomplished. Did they hear it? Yes. Did they understand it? Yes. Did they accept it? Remember, hearing isn't enough. You have to believe. No. Are they therefore culpable? Yes. And we only have a couple of minutes, but do, do you... This is a little bit heavy, but yet it isn't. Do you understand what Paul's done here? Now, you could shift that. He isn't doing it here. But you could shift that to any human being. The gospel is someone who's sent. They proclaim it. You hear it. You respond in faith. Then you have the relationship with God. Today, throughout the world, God is sending people to proclaim so that people can hear and then respond. And remember, God's methodology involves four elements. First, his creation. A person who's never heard about Jesus Christ at all can respond to God in creation, and God sends more revelation to it. Second, God has revealed himself through human conscience. The heart of the human being has innate sense of right and wrong. The conscience becomes the guide of that, but we harden our conscience and harden our heart. Third is the moral law of God revealed, both in our hearts and in the Ten Commandments. And fourth, fourth and finally, is Jesus. So in the words of Isaiah 50, 65, verse 2, all day long I've held up my hand to this being contrary people. That's specifically referencing the Jewish people in the context in which Paul is using it. But in a very real sense, that could be expanded to all of humanity. All day long, my arms are stretched out to bring you to me. I have done it. I've revealed myself in my creation, in human conscience, in my moral law, in Jesus. You have four sources of my revelation to respond to. As you respond to one, I send more. That you have a clarity of understanding all that Jesus Christ has done for you in the cross and the resurrection song. Because faith comes from hearing. 
It's believing what you hear. Yeah, please. You have a oh, different so color. He heard and had to understand he, he wouldn't change. Why was his heart so hard? Jesus had to physically come to him, slap him on the side of the head, and straighten him up, which also led to him being a, a leader at the time of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. He changed. Yep. So, what are we missing? And why would. I understand why it was so hard for Paul being such a smart man and not have seen that before he saw Jesus in Damascus. I could see where all, a lot of the other Jews they didn't believe either. Why wouldn't they believe? I mean, that's, I don't know if you can answer that. Well, I don't think I can satisfactorily answer it, Ed, because you're asking questions about the heart of Paul. And I, I just don't know. He tells us a little bit about it. And it's largely in his, you know, his his defense of himself and what he did is he talks about it in, in chapter 9, chapter 22, chapter 23, the book of Acts, when he's appearing before various groups. He tells his story. And the language he uses is the same language he's using here. I had the zeal. I had the passion for God. But it was all in the construct of I'll use the words of the Old Testament. I rejected the idea that Jesus is Messiah because what I wanted the Messiah to be, he wasn't. And so I think in that sense, Ed, I'm going to go out a little bit on a limb here, but I think it might be safe to do that. Paul represented where most of the Jews were in the first century. They knew what the Old Testament taught, the prophets, etc. They knew what it taught. They knew what to look for. They looked at Jesus and said, He's not my Messiah. I thought he would throw off the yoke of Rome and set up God's kingdom now and deliver it to Israel. Remember, the, the disciples said to Jesus in Acts chapter 1, after his death, burial, resurrection is over, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? That's how they were thinking. And as long as Paul's in that mindset, he can't match his mindset of what Messiah should be with what Jesus did. And that's the Jewish problem. Here's our mindset, our expectation. Here's what Jesus said. Well, they don't match up as far as we're concerned. doesn't matter. He healed the sick, raised it, all the things that the Old Testament taught. It's he is not our deliverer. He was supposed to deliver us from the oppression. That makes sense. They were looking for something in and out. It's, and Jesus, in, in, I think it's Matthew 16, but Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's being brought you rejected John the Baptist, and you're rejecting me because we don't meet your expectation. That's a quote. And I think that captures it. And quite frankly, that's where most Jewish people are, whether you're a Reformed Jew, a Conservative Jew, or an Orthodox Jew. This Jesus, historical figure, I know he lived, I know he was crucified, I don't believe he was resurrected, but I believe he was a historical figure, but he's not on the side. When he did, that doesn't match what the expectation on the side. That's not what the side is. Have two minutes. Well, I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, it's just, it was wrong for them to have that expectation. But that was the expectation that they had. And in a sense, and it's so true today, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, for you to make that step of faith. Paul isn't dealing with that in this passage. 
Given the Holy Spirit will be acting through those four elements that you stated of creation. Creation, conscience, moral law, and Jesus. We state the definition you gave of moral law. Well, the moral law is the Catholic Church calls it natural law, but it's the moral law that God has has revealed in all civilization, but including in our heart, but also the moral law you find in the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments. The articulation of that is the Ten Commandments. But as, you know, it, it, even government organizes its laws around the moral laws of God. All right? Would it be all right if we pray here? Yes, that'd be fine. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Woody, for giving me permission. I'm trying to, I'm being sensitive to the clock, but also to where we, this is a great place to stop. Well, in the sense that we've completed this particular analysis. And now next week we get into chapter 11, which is the capstone of Paul's argument. And this is where Paul answers that question. Okay, the Jews have rejected Jesus as a Messiah. Here's the question. Therefore, is God done with the Jews? In other words, is the Abrahamic covenant still operative? And that's what he's going to answer in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, oh, it'll take us two weeks at least to get through chapter 11. I mean, it, it's going to take us the way I want to do it, so it'll take it. That's why verse 1 of chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? That's the key question. Chapter 11 is the answer to that. Father, we thank you for our study in Romans. I, every time I teach this, I'm just absolutely overwhelmed at the brilliance of the Apostle Paul, but also the clarity of the Holy Spirit inspiring all this. The argument he's laying out is so clear for us. The focus on the sovereignty of God, chapter 9. The focus on the responsible freedom of the people of Israel. The gospel comes by someone being sent to proclaim the truth. You hear the truth, you respond in faith, and you have the relationship. You can call upon him, him you, you believe. The tragedy is they heard, they understood, but they didn't believe. And as he concludes that chapter, here's God with his arm outstretched, wanting them to come, but they refused. Lord, in a, in a much broader sense, that applies to all humanity. God is standing with his arms wide open. Everything that needs to be done in terms of salvation has been done. You hear the truth. You have all the evidence that God exists. You have all the evidence of who he is and what he's done. The response is to be a response of faith. I trust and believe everyone in this room and everyone online has responded in faith can now call upon him whom they believed, have that personal, intimate relationship with him. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who sovereignly works in all of these things, using the inspired word, using people who are gifted to accomplish his work, to bring people to faith in Christ. So we're going to go into our, our day now, the rest of this day. It's an absolutely gorgeous fall day. Thank you for creating it and sharing it with us. And we do, again, just remember the people there in Florida as the storm will soon hit land. Lord, be gracious, be merciful, and we trust all of it to you. So give us a good rest of this day as we always try to pray. May we represent you well in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.